So today is the first Sunday of Advent, and we begin a new Advent sermon series that will take us up through Christmas Day, and we're looking at the final two chapters of the book of Revelation. And then on Christmas Day, we're going to look at the story of Jesus' birth as it is told to us in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation. And so that will be our Advent sermon series. And before we begin, there's a couple things that I feel compelled to mention to help us orient ourselves to this sermon series. Uh, the first one is just a reminder uh, that Advent comes at the end of the church calendar. Interestingly enough, I know this is the Christmas season and we're all looking forward to the birth of Christ, but actually, according to the church calendar, uh, it begins on Christmas Day with the birth of Christ. And then it goes through Epiphany, where we meet the Magi, and then Lent, and then Easter, and then the Ascension of Christ, and then into ordinary time, back around until the end of the church year, when we're looking forward to the second advent of Jesus, his second coming. And a lot of the themes are similar uh, between his first and his second coming, and so it's appropriate that there is some overlap. But we're looking at the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, we're looking right into the moment that Christ will return, set up his kingdom, and make all things new. Uh, and so keep that in mind as we move forward. Uh, the second thing to remember is that the book of Revelation is probably the most difficult book in all of the Bible uh, to interpret and understand. Uh, it was written by the Apostle John, who also wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And the fact that John wrote Revelation is where much of the agreement between Christians ends. <laughs> uh, there are faithful Christians who have very different views on how we should read and understand and apply this book. Um, my view is the one that is held by most Reformed Christians. Uh, it is the view that is the most prevalent in our denomination uh, here in the Christian Reformed Church. And that is the view that the book of Revelation should be understood as more of a word painting. It was written in a certain genre of literature that, like a picture, is meant to make you feel something more than it's meant to make you think particular things. Now, not that we leave our minds at the door and we don't think. Not that the book of Revelation isn't true. It is true. Every word of it is true but it's a stylized, imagination-filled book. It's meant to cause us to feel the truths that it is explaining to us, rather than wrap our minds fully and completely around them in a logical order. So this is how this works. Uh, for example, when Hitler rises to power in Germany in the 1920s and 30s, and then he oversees the extermination of six million Jews, and then if you're a Christian in Europe during that time, it's very likely that you went through tribulation. You went through the kind of experience that the book of Revelation is telling Christians that you're going to go through in this life. And so the book of Revelation didn't specifically predict that exact kind or that exact tribulation, but it did predict that the kind of tribulation that you experienced would happen. Which means the book of Revelation is meaningful and relevant for every Christian and every generation 
because it's talking about the kind of experiences we will have as Christians. And it's not until the final judgment and the picture of heaven from chapters 20 through 22 that we see anything that could qualify as an historical event. But even then, it's, it's stylized. It's, it's imaginative. We don't believe the streets of heaven are literally paved with gold, but we're told that to make us think and feel something about heaven, about its value. So Revelation then is a book about what's going on in the spiritual realm from the time of Christ until his return. It's a book that reminds Christians that there will be suffering and trials and even death. But Jesus is victorious. And for those who keep their faith in spite of those trials, they will inherit the promises of the book of Revelation. So, for this season of Advent, we are going to consider the reward. We're going to consider those promises that will be ours. And this is the hope of every Christian. And so I'm sure you all have turned there already. Uh, but we're in Revelation chapter 21. And we're looking at verses 1 through 8. That is page number 1,937 of your pew Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. John writes to the seven churches, and he begins his conclusion of the book by saying this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. So chapter 21 of the book of Revelation uh, begins immediately after John has just finished describing the final judgment. Right before our passage, we read this. He says, Each person was judged according to what they had done, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So John turns from this horrifying vision of judgment where the devil and his followers and the fallen angels are all destroyed in the lake of fire. And he turns and the next thing he sees is heaven. Now that God has judged everyone from this point forward, everything we see is a picture of the world as God intends it to be for his people. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. See, you and I know we live in a world that is full of beauty and goodness and wonderful things and joyful things and flavorful things and colorful things. And there's much about this world that is so good. But we also know that we live in a world that is filled with death and disaster and disease. And throughout the Bible, God promises his people that his plan is to save us from the effects of sin on this world. And that our ultimate destination is a, is a world where the lion will lie down with the lamb, a world where we don't have to be afraid, a world where heaven and earth are not separated any longer and they've come together. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were sent out of the garden, out of the presence of God, out into this world that he had cursed because of their sin. And Paul tells us that the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from the, its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And this is what John is seeing in Revelation at this point. He's seeing the moment when creation is liberated from its bondage to decay and the creation itself is brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. John describes it as a new heaven and a new earth because there's something fundamentally different about it. It's no longer temporary. It's eternal. It's no longer filled with death and destruction and disease. It's filled with goodness and righteousness and perfection. It's liberated because it's still recognizable as heaven and earth, right? It's the earth. Our ultimate destination is not a place where we float around as disembodied spirits playing harps. No, our ultimate destination is earth. Except it's an earth as it was always intended to be. The best uh, analogy for this is the caterpillar butterfly. Right? The old earth that passes away is the, butterf is the caterpillar and the new earth is like a butterfly. Like there's still continuity, there's still sameness, but it's so different. It's so transformed that it can be called new. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, the apostle Paul is explaining to the church in Corinth uh, what their resurrected bodies are gonna be like. And these are the bodies that you and I will have when we inhabit this new heaven and this new earth. 
And Paul says these new bodies are spiritual, whereas the old bodies were natural. And he, he compares it to like a seed, the difference between a seed and the plant that springs from the seed. Right? There's still continuity there, there's still sameness, but in some way the, the seed passes away so that this new thing can come into being. Just like Jesus' resurrected body. His body was earthly, he ate food, he could be touched, but yet there was something different about it. He was still recognizable as Jesus, but there was something transformed. So this seed of our current heaven and earth will one day blossom and become something so different that John calls it new. And then John adds, there will no longer be any sea. Uh, for most of human history, the sea was the biggest, darkest, most unknown, most chaotic, most unstable place on the planet. Uh, if you were a sailor and you went out onto the sea to travel somewhere, there was really no guarantee that you were going to get there. The sea was the place where foreign armies would just show up on your shore to come and attack you and your people. We like to think of the sea as something beautiful, filled with all kinds of wonderful creatures. We don't naturally associate it with danger, but for John and his audience, and for most humans throughout history, when he says there will no longer be any sea, they understood that he is saying there will no longer be anything chaotic, unstable, or dangerous. Not that God's literally going to get rid of the sea. Remember, the book of Revelation is stylized. It's, it's imaginative. He's saying that, that things in places like this will no longer exist. And John goes on and says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. In the Old Testament, the city of Jerusalem was very important. It was the capital of Judah. Well, it was originally the capital of Israel, and then it was the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom. It was the city of David, the great king. It was the place where Solomon built the temple, the house of God, the place where God then came and dwelt among his people. But Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. The temple was destroyed. And it was destroyed because God's people rebelled against him, they sinned against him, they refused to listen to his prophets or follow his word. But God and his grace allowed Jerusalem and the temple to be rebuilt. And it was that second temple, that second Jerusalem that Jesus inhabited when he came to this earth. And then the people of that city did the same thing to him that they had done to the prophets before. They killed him. They handed him over to the Romans to be crucified on a cross. And then in 70 AD, about 35 years later, after Jesus walked the streets of Jerusalem, the second temple and the second Jerusalem was destroyed, this time by the Romans. And now John is seeing a new Jerusalem. He's seeing a city that is every bit as new as the new heavens and the new earth. And it is what the Old Testament Jerusalem was supposed to be. 
the city of the great king, the place where God would come and dwell with his people. But this time, the great king is Jesus. And as we'll see as we go through the rest of chapter 21, God is no longer confined to a small square box in the center of the temple and the center of the city. No, God is going to inhabit every corner of this city with his people. But John doesn't just see a city. He sees a city that is prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, which means he also sees the church. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul tells the Corinthians, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul writes to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5, he's describing the relationship between husbands and wives and Christian marriages are supposed to reflect this relationship between Christ and his bride, which is the church. And Paul concludes by saying, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So when we see this city coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, we know that John is describing for us both a people, right? Because we're the church, we're the bride of Christ, and a place. This is the church. This is the bride of Christ. It is the new Jerusalem. It's the place where God will be because God is going to be with us. John goes on, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. You see, this is what we lost in the Garden of Eden. When God used to come and he would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And God's covenant promise throughout scripture has always been that he would come and he would dwell with us again. This is our hope. This is what we have to look forward to. This is what God has been restoring for his people throughout history, starting with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, on through Moses, who built a tent out in the desert for God called a tabernacle. This is the desire of every nation. This is the joy of every longing heart. The fact that God is there is what makes heaven such a wonderful place. Which is why the sanctuary that Moses first built was so important. God tells Moses, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. You see, God showed Moses the pattern of heaven. He showed Moses the heavenly tabernacle. And so Moses patterned the original tabernacle after heaven. And now what we're seeing in Revelation is, is this tabernacle coming down onto earth and tying up all these pictures that God has sown for us throughout Scripture. And when the people came into the land, King David wants to finally replace the tabernacle with a temple, and God tells David... When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And yes, David's son Solomon did build a temple, but that's the 
first temple that we just talked about that was destroyed. You see, it was another son of David who would finally build a house for God. And the house that Jesus builds is the church, the New Testament temple of God. Paul tells the Ephesians, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You see, it's a people and a place. We are the temple of God. We are the new Jerusalem. We are the bride of Christ. We are the place where one day God will make his dwelling forever in the new heavens and the new earth. We are his people and he is our God and he will be with us forever. And you and I, we have a taste of this right now because his spirit comes and dwells inside us. And when we come together as the church, we experience a little bit of what John is pointing us forward to here. But one day, it will be perfect and complete and total. And then John tells us what's, what it's going to be like. He says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Every tear. No more depression, no more suffering, right? There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The caterpillar is gone. The butterfly is here. The seed has grown into the plant. The old order filled with death, disaster, disease, filled with sin and disbelief, it will pass away. And God himself who loves us and came to us in the person of Jesus Christ and suffered and died in our place, he will be the one to wipe away our tears. And we will spend eternity with God in this new heaven and this new earth. So I tried to imagine what this would be like. And the closest thing that I could think of, and, and I don't know if I'm even right here, but, but I think I'm onto something. The closest thing I could think of is those moments in our lives where we get caught up in something and we're so in the moment that we forget about the regrets from our past, we forget about all the longings and the fears about our future, and we're just there in the moment. Enjoying that moment for what it is. Satisfied in that reality. As a kid, I remember laughing with friends and cousins and just loving the moment. I remember the first day I ever, first time I ever acted in a play, having the same experience. I remember when my wife was walking down the aisle on our wedding day, having this experience where I'm just caught up in the moment. The past is gone, the future doesn't matter, this moment is all there is. I felt that the same day, uh, the day my son was first born, my first son. Uh, the others, it was just kind of like a blur, but I remember, I remember the first one. And it's this beautiful experience. 
Sometimes I get caught up in a movie like this. Sometimes worshiping God is like this. Hearing a song, looking at nature. Being with family during the holidays, as we've all just experienced, can be like that. And I imagine this scene that John is painting for us, it will be like that forever. Where we're just caught up in the moment with the Lord. Speaking of this, the Apostle Paul says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, Christ is your life. He is our everything. He is the beginning and the end, and we will be caught up with him in that moment, worshiping forever. No tears, no crying, no pain. And up to this point in the scene, John's been describing what he sees. He's told us what he hears, but now in verse 5, John is very clear that God is the one speaking. And God says this. Well, John says, He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So several times throughout Scripture, God speaks about his plan to make everything new. In Isaiah, God says, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. And the idea here is that God is doing a new thing and it will start like a stream in the wilderness. And then it's going to flow out into all of history and all of creation. And then God's work of doing a new thing is going to be revealed. The Apostle Paul calls us new creations. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And that's what happens to us, right? This stream of life from God flows into the wilderness of our hearts and makes us into new creations. But in our passage, God assures us that one day everything is new. He says, I am making everything new. A new heaven and a new earth, a place where there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And it struck me, if you're John and you're, and you're caught up in this moment and you're seeing all this in the vision, and then all of a sudden God says, write this down. It's like, Ooh, all of a sudden you realize, oh yeah, this is, it hasn't happened yet. This is something that John John saw in the past, and then he writes down for us about the future. And it is trustworthy and true what John writes down. And God has John write it down because this is the hope every single one of us should spend our whole lives nurturing inside our hearts. Friends, we nurture a lot of hopes inside our hearts. And by nurture, I mean we think about it, we plan for it, we dream about it, we meditate on it. And we're given this picture of heaven in Scripture so that we can train our hearts and minds to nurture this hope. So let me ask us this morning, what are you nurturing in your heart? 
Are you longing to return to the past? Are you pining for something in the future? If so, what would your ideal future be? What is your if only? Is it an experience? If I could just go somewhere, if I could just do something. Is it a certain set of circumstances? If only this could fall into place for me, then, then my longings would be satisfied. Is it something godly or God-honoring or not? Would, would, we, would we be embarrassed to tell people what it is we dream about and meditate on? But the truth is, this side of eternity, life is a constant experience of unfulfilled longings. And it's confusing because those longings are mixed in with the fact that we live in a fallen world. It's mixed in with our own sin and failure and regret, other people's sin and failure. And it's hard to know what we're supposed to do with it all. One of my favorite songs in the world is uh, Billy Joel's The Piano Man. You guys know this song? And I love this song because it's a song about these people who are at a bar, and um, there's this man who plays the piano there, and everyone the piano man meets at the bar is longing for something. I want to read you a, a line, a couple lines from the song. He says, Now Paul is a real estate novelist who never had time for a wife. And he's talking with Davy, who's still in the Navy and probably will be for life. And the waitress is practicing politics as the businessman slowly gets stoned. Yes, they're sharing a drink they call loneliness, but it's better than drinking alone. So Paul chooses writing novels over marriage. Davy chooses the Navy over who knows what else. The waitress, she wants to go into politics and yet she's waitressing at a bar. Can't you just feel the unfulfilled longings and the regrets? And it seems like the businessman is the only one who's got it together, but there's so much stress in his life that he apparently needs to come to a bar and get high to deal with it. And they're all alone together at a bar trying to deal with these feelings of unfulfilled longings. And we all have these feelings. And the question is, what do we do with them? Is the answer to finally fulfill them? Or is the answer to replace those longings? To train our heart and mind to hope and long for something even more wonderful. See, here's the thing, friends. We are going to long and desire and ache for something the rest of our lives. And the antidote that God gives us in Scripture is not necessarily that He's going to come and fulfill our longings. He gives us something that's just better to long for. And if we feed and water and meditate on and think about and hope in and hope for this moment, 
When God makes all things new, then we can handle any regret, we can face any failure, we can experience any disappointment, because nothing that happens in this world can take this moment away from us. That's why it's here. That's why God tells John to write it down. That's why God says these words are trustworthy and true. Then he goes on and says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. You see, it's done. Even though it hasn't happened yet, it's done because it was finished on the cross. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And so what God is saying here is that he is the beginning as well as the end. He knows the beginning from the end, and he has ordained all things, and that's why we can be sure that when God says it's done, it's done. Paul says in Ephesians that he works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So if you're here today, and you, like me, are thirsty for a hope like this, if you are thirsty and longing to have all of your unfulfilled longings and fears and regrets relocated so that this hope can be the one that fills your heart and mind and life forever, then come and drink from the spring of the water of life. God says, to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. This is an allusion from Jeremiah, or sorry, Isaiah 55, where we read, and this is God speaking, Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? Why settle for anything less? And your labor on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. It's free because Jesus paid the price. It's free because Jesus suffered and died for sinners like you and me so that we could eat this meal, so that we could, we could enjoy the wedding supper of the Lamb for free as the bride of Christ. And Jesus is the one who has the water of life. Remember what he told the woman at the well. Everyone who drinks earthly water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. To have this water, to have this hope, to know all this is yours, all we do is turn from our sin and believe that Jesus died for the full forgiveness of every sinner who puts their trust in him. And then God says, those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. Which begs the question, what does it mean to be victorious? Because I want to inherit all this. I want this hope. I'm thirsty. I'm longing. Well, John, who wrote Revelation, actually tells us in 1 John. He says, in fact, this is love for God 
to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So the victorious, the one who inherits all this, they are those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The victory that overcomes the world is our faith. And yes, our faith does produce love for God and keeping his commandments, but his commandments are not burdensome, right? All we do is believe and keep on believing, no matter the trials, no matter the temptations, no matter our suffering, our disappointments, no matter what we face in this life. If we nurture the hope of this passage, if we let this be the hope that orients every other hope and longing we experience in this life. Finally, there's one last verse here in this passage that's a little bit more difficult to wrap our minds around. Our passage closes this way. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So this is definitely a warning that no one who lives like this will enter the new heavens and the new earth. But for those who have come to God thirsty, to drink from his water of life without cost, those who are victorious over sin and death by faith, by simply believing that Jesus is the Son of God. This verse is not here to condemn us because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No, this verse is here to assure us that never again will anyone or anything unholy enter this place where we are at and take away our happiness our joy, or our rest. No one again will ever sin against us. No sin will ever well up inside our hearts. There'll be no need to fear injustice or abuse or even someone lying to us or letting us down. As Jonathan Edwards said, heaven is a world of love. And that world of love is the hope of every Christian. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we just ask that you would cause us to long for this more than anything else in this life. That all of our other hopes and longings would be oriented around this one. The one that is sure because it is done. And you are the Alpha and the Omega the one that satisfies our longing to be rid of our own sin, to no longer be in a fallen world, and to be with you in your presence forever, God. May this be the desire of all our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.